0: Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Just a fair warning, I have really, really bad luck with water. Spill it a lot. Spilled some last night, like a whole glass. Almost spilled some on Shannon's uh, Apple computer at a couple teaching team meetings, like twice in a row. Uh, I'm on probation, so this is that would be strike three for me. Let's open God's Word this morning. I'll tell you right now, I know you guys are used to seeing verses up on the screen. There's just going to be a lot of text this morning, so if you have a Bible, feel free to open it. Try to follow along. Um, you can go on your phone. I'm sure you might have an app there. Uh, if you can't follow along, just Listen. I'm going to try and lead you guys. I'm going to try to give you guys advance warning to get to different spots, but it's okay to just hear, too, okay? We're going to to start in the book of Jeremiah. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's from chapter 23, starting in verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who care for them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall be any missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which... He will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us ears to hear and hearts willing to receive and to grow in in your grace that we might have your favor to do the works of righteousness. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's jump right in. We got a lot to cover, and I might have to cut some stuff out on the fly. I want to do a little background first, okay? Because we talk about God's name, we talk about his, his character, and um, it might be misleading just to jump right into like. The smack dab in the middle of the Bible and pull a passage out and hold it up and say, look at this, this is wonderful, is this so amazing? But I want you to know that God's name and character are revealed in a context, right? God has seen fit to reveal who he is primarily through this drama, this narrative, this story with characters. And, and this is the way that God reveals himself and so I want to paint a little bit of a backstory. I know for a lot of folks, the Old Testament is kind of like a um, strange place. It's kind of a, an intimidating neighborhood. So if there's a neighborhood that you're not familiar with and you feel kind of intimidated, you usually don't go there by yourself. So we can go together and we can spend a little time. And I just want to paint a little bit of a rough sketch. Just a, just a brief, you know, couple broad brush strokes to, to frame this passage in Jeremiah's time. I want to go back a little bit before Jeremiah. I want to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And um, just like a little snapshot from the birth of a nation, if you want to call it that. Um, brief guideline. You know, in, in, in the scriptures, you have this drama that starts out with creation. And it's good, and it's very good, it's super good, and it's beautiful and wonderful and splendid, and it falls. And sin enters the world through rebellion and disobedience, and there's tragedy, and there's bloodshed, you know, and there's catastrophe. And God calls this, this, this fellow Abraham, and he says, you're going to be my dude. I'm going to enter into relationship with you. I'm going to enter into covenant with you. You're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. And your people are going to be my people, down through the generations. And to the point that God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I want that blessing to spread throughout the entire face of the earth, through all people. And so Abraham... And his offspring and his children and his children's children, they're walking with God, and God is revealing himself to him. And a lot of the names that we've looked at have been, you know, God speaking to Abraham or to Isaac or to to Jacob or to Sarah, their offspring. But that family tree finds himself in slavery and in bondage in Egypt. And God goes into Egypt, and he takes these people out, and he delivers them through mighty deeds of power, and he brings them out to himself. And he begins to build on that relationship and establish this, this covenant, this legal, binding relationship and agreement where he says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and this is how we're going to relate. This is what's, what it's going to look like for us to live together. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 4, you get, you get the people of Israel And they're standing right on the border of this land that's been promised to them. And they've been waiting for it for generations and generations. And God has been leading them through this wilderness and teaching them. And they're they're poised to walk in and to enter and to take possession of what's been promised. And God is speaking to them through Moses. And he says this, starting in verse 5. See, I have taught you Statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous is all this law that I set before you today. God's painting a vision for these people that if, if they live in relationship with him, if they walk according to his word, his instruction and his law, it says it's going to be wisdom for you. It's going to bear witness to your neighbors. God's painting a picture of the surrounding nations hearing about what's going on in Israel and looking in and seeing what's going on and that they would be drawn into that and attracted to it. That's if God's people would walk in obedience to his law and his word. That it would be wisdom. That it would bear witness to their neighbors and that it would be righteousness. Righteousness we oftentimes, we have misconceptions about the Old Testament and the law in particular. Like it's just a bunch of strange, weird, kind of obtuse traditions and statutes and rules and regulations that don't make any sense to us. But that's not the picture that's being painted here, is it? And I want you to just, for a minute, minute have some sympathy that you know, God is speaking to a people who has spent multiple generations in slavery. And they don't have any... Any experience in self governance. And so God's law, His Torah, His instruction, is a kindness. It's a protection. It's going to give order. It's going to show them how to live amongst their neighbors and deal with one another righteously and wisely. It gives them the standard by which they order their lives. But there's a danger in that, too. It's kindness, and it's merciful, but there's a danger because when you know the standard of how you ought to live, that doesn't automatically mean you obey it. Knowing the standard doesn't make us automatically live up to that. So it's God's grace to give the law, to restrain sin, to give wisdom, to to sponsor righteousness, but at the same time, there's that danger, too. There's that danger, too. Knowing the standard doesn't automatically mean we live up to it. And Moses warns that. Continuing in in verse 9, he says this, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children, to your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and they may teach their children so. There's a danger that we would forget, that we would ignore. We would just let this, let this fade into the background. So now let's play the tape forward. Let's go back to Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah is speaking to the people in the land, in Jerusalem, right? They've, they've gone in. They've taken the possession of the land. And let's see. Let's see. Let's get some highlights in Jeremiah. We're going to start in chapter 5, and we're just going gonna to cruise through a little bit. I'm just going to give you a little overview. But I want you to listen. See if, see if Israel is fulfilling her calling to be a light to the nation's. See if she's living in such a way so as to put the righteousness of God on display. I'm going to read from Jeremiah chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to skip a little. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Though they say, "As the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. O oh Lord, do your eyes do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You've consumed them, but they've refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. And then I said, "These are only the poor. they don't have any sense. They do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I'll go to the great. And will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst their bonds. I'm going to skip to verse 7. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are not gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the house of whores. They were well fed. Lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? We're going to jump to verse 28. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Where I jump to chapter 16, or 6, sorry. From the greatest to the least of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At that time, I will punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So Jeremiah, he's a prophet, okay? It means he's like an ambassador, a messenger from the king. Who's the king he's representing? Y'all can say it. God, yeah. Not the king of Judah, the king of kings. And unfortunately, he's got some bad news. Prophets with really good news and easy comforting words, they were very popular in Jeremiah's time and the only problem with that was is that their message was false. It's bad enough that the people were doing evil and they were walking in unrighteousness but the so-called prophets, the ones that were supposed to speak God's words to the people. They didn't know how to tell the truth. And I don't know if, 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 either they didn't have the sense to see what was going on, or they didn't have the courage to speak it. They didn't want to make any trouble. But uh, they couldn't tell it like it is. It says in uh, chapter 5, verse 31, the prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests, the priests the ones who are not supposed to just offer sacrifices, but they're supposed to instruct people in the law. They're supposed to play a role in establishing justice and righteousness according to the law, according to God's word. They go along with it. They follow suit. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. What about the people? Surely the people won't stand for it. They're going to speak up. They're not going to let this slide. The people love it that way. My my people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? Jeremiah is painting a picture of rich and poor across all spectrums of society, from the greatest to the least. There's corruption and there's injustice. And there's unrighteousness. And so God, in his righteousness, says, shall I not punish them for these things? How can I not do anything? How can I stand back and let this slide? And Jeremiah, seeing this, where should he go? Who should he talk to? Maybe he goes to the king. Maybe if he gets an audience in the halls of power, maybe if he talks to the one in charge, then things will change. Maybe if he can speak truth to power, right? That will turn things around. So he goes to the king in chapter 22. Reading in verse 1, he says, Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David. You and your servants and your people who enter these gates, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, and they and their servants and their people But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, this house shall become a desolation. Will the king listen? Will the people listen? Will the prophets listen? Will the priests listen? The first passage we read this morning, it starts off. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep. Woe to you. It's a bad sign if you go in for like a a work evaluation and the first word out of your boss's mouth is woe to you. You might be looking for another job real soon. All of that to say this, right? It's very, it's kind of a dramatic, hyperbolic, kind of overstating the case, but all that to say this, um, God's people are in a bad way. Jerusalem is in trouble. And disaster is looming on the horizon. There's a failure of the community to embody righteousness and justice. There's structural injustice. But you don't just need better laws because they have the best law. They have the Torah of the Lord. They have the law that God himself gave to them. And it's not enough. The best law in the world is not enough if people disregard it. What about new leaders? Maybe if they just get new leadership in there and they can change some things around. But they're all corrupt. The priest, the prophet, the king, and the people, they're all corrupt. This is where God's righteousness becomes a problem. If God is righteous... And his people are not. That's problematic. That's a glaring contradiction calling out for resolution. And you see it. You see it in the book of Jeremiah. And you see it throughout all the Old Testament prophets. That there's this, there's this vision. And it's an elusive vision almost to the point that you could call it a dream. This vision of a kingdom of righteousness and justice. And at the same time, alongside that vision, there's this unflinching focus of the unrighteousness of the people. And it's, it's a conflict. They don't just focus on the, the injustice of the wicked pagan nations around them, the Babylonians and the, and the Persians and all that. They focus mostly on the sins of God's people themselves. That's the problem. And if you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, this is great, this is exactly what I came to church for, to hear about <laughs> wickedness and sin and unrighteousness, I'm just, fair warning, it's going to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> um, when God makes a promise that I'm going I'm to raise up I'm going to raise up to to David's line a righteous branch. He shall reign as king. He'll deal wisely. He'll execute justice and righteousness. God keeps his promise. He sends that king, and that king is named Jesus. Jesus the Christ. Christ is not a last name. It's a title. It means the anointed one. It means the promised one. It means the long-awaited one. And Jesus comes to the people. He comes to his own people. He comes into the land. And in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 5, he stands up on the mountain like a new Moses. And he takes up this cry of the prophets. And he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the people's hearts start to raise They raise their hopes, their expectations. They say, yes, we've wanted righteousness and justice, and we haven't seen it. We've been waiting. We've been hearing about it, but we don't see it. And people start to have hope. And at the same time, he takes that standard of righteousness, and he raises it even higher. And he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And everyone's heart drops. the righteous king has now come and here's the question how how is he received play the tape forward is he received with open arms and a warm welcome by the government leaders and the religious leaders and even the masses of people is that how it plays out is it kumbaya and happily ever after it's not it's not the coming of the righteous one into the world that he made and he came to save, it it ends in tragedy, true to form. The unrighteousness and the wickedness of the people climaxes in the crucifixion of the Son of God. That is the supreme act of injustice. And in any case, if we think that we can, we sit here and we pardon ourselves and we say, I wasn't there. I didn't have nothing to do with it. I'm not Herod. I'm not Pilate. I'm not those masses of people calling out for Jesus' blood. I'll tell you this. Those are people just like us. We belong to that same race, that human race. And we're part of that same world that murders the innocent. It's not just structural injustice. It's not just systematic evil. It's worse. It's all humanity, from the greatest to the least. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the church at Rome, he takes up this, takes up this, this chorus um, from the Old Testament, the prophets and the Psalms, and he strings a bunch of them together, and it's this summary indictment against not just some bad people, but against all of us. And he says, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. This is where we have to face that contradiction head on. If God is truly righteous, we are in awful trouble. If God is just and we are unjust, that's a problem. If God is holy and good and we are sinful and evil, what hope do we have that we would stand before Him and find anything other than punishment and condemnation? How in the world can we ever say, "The Lord is our righteousness? We'll keep reading. In Romans, chapter 3, verse 21. But now. But now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's good news. This is not something that some people need. Rather, all have sinned. This is not something that that we, we work up and try to earn hard, okay? This is something that's given to us as a gift, and nobody, nobody earns a gift. This is where God's righteousness goes from standing over against us to being for us. It goes from being a demand to a donation, okay? Okay? This is something that that God in his sheer charity shows us through Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God is donated to us. It is gifted to us. Sorry. It is gifted to us in Jesus Christ and, and it's worked out in us and through us by the Holy Spirit. We're good. We're good about the justification part. We're good about being declared righteous because of the blood of Jesus. Sometimes the the second part doesn't come through, that we are actually made righteous by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's both. It's both. The scriptures bear witness, and the historic church bears witness that Jesus Christ gave his life that we could both be declared righteous and made righteous. And it's it's encouraging to me that, that in Romans, right, where the gospel is laid out super clear, the Apostle Paul, he has to walk through, you know, again and again, all these, but so if, you know, like, so if our sins show off God's graciousness, then we should keep sinning, right? No. No. So, so we don't have to follow the law to try to earn God's favor. So we can just keep sinning, right? No, I, I'm kind of encouraged by that. That like even at the beginning, like some of the main pastoral problems that that the apostles had to deal with with people just like so we can keep sinning, right? No, no, very it's very timely. Chapter after chapter, man, Paul's going to work and he's saying, look, the redemption that Christ accomplished is more than just giving us a free pass. We are recipients not only of Christ's righteousness, but we also receive the Spirit of God. And we who have been declared righteous by faith in Christ, we also walk and we live by the power of the Spirit that righteousness is being fulfilled in us and worked out in us. And there's so many things we could say about that. And I know... Someone's going to get upset because I'm not going to cover everything or their favorite part or their favorite aspect. You just can't do condemnation, justification, and sanctification all in one Sunday morning. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. I have to be someplace at 1 o'clock. But because I have the opportunity, I just want to. I just want to a little bit. Okay? One thing. I'm going to go to Philippians. I'm going to try and find it. I'll race you there. I ran out of uh, bookmarks this morning. Ephesians, here it is. Yes, chapter 1. Um, starting verse 6. I'm sure of this. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God's begun a good work in us. He's declared us righteous by the blood of his son. If you're in Jesus Christ, if you believe through faith in the gospel, you have been declared righteous. And he who started a good work, Paul is certain God's going to complete that. He's going to see it through. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I told you in in my heart, for you are all partakers of me with grace. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve what's excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit (laughs) of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's where I want to camp out. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. When we think about the fruit of righteousness as something that grows out of what, what Christ has given to us, I think it puts things in perspective. Because this, crumbs, this comes from Christ and not from us. And it's to the glory and praise of God and not to exalting us and making us look good and special. It puts our works into a new light. Whether it's prayer or devotion or charity or giving or works of service to others, these are not things that we do so that we can be super spiritual. Sometimes we have this misconception that that, people do these spiritual disciplines so they can seem like some spiritual all-star. You know, like it's some kind of, you know, workout routine at the gym. I don't think that's what it's like at all. I think that's the wrong metaphor. We give ourselves to these spiritual disciplines, and that's just a way to say, like, these, these ways and these means and these methods that, that the Spirit is using to work out in us. It's the ways that God gets at us, that we avail ourselves to his power and his grace and his mercy. That's not like going and working out at the gym. That's like going to the doctor. Nobody nobody who says, I'm going to the doctor three or four or five times a week, no one says, wow, you must be really healthy. They say, what's wrong with you, man? A lot. A lot. And whether, whether you want to call it Growing in holiness or Christ-likeness or godliness, it's all just saying the same thing. These are the ways that, that the Spirit's trying to get at us. When we, when we give ourselves to prayer, it's not so we can be some awesome kind of athlete. It's just an admission that, man, we are in a bad way and we need a lot of help. A lot of help. And so don't get it twisted when you're like, I don't do all that stuff because I'm not some super Christian. I mean, most of the people in the history of the church that have given their lives over to to trying to become saints, they are very cognizantly aware of their own sinfulness, very much so. And so it's not like a bad word to try and be a saint. It's just, it's admitting that I'm a mess and I need all the help I can get. I think a lot of us just struggle unnecessarily because we don't give ourselves to these things. You know? It's not, it's not something to brag about. Don't no, one, uh, don't no one compliment you because, hey, I ate today and yesterday. Hey, of course you did. You'd die if you didn't. I even breathe in my sleep. Yeah, yes, I know. Good for you. It's not like that. It's just, we just need him. We need him. And I'm telling you, man, God does not need your righteousness at all. Not a bit. But your neighbor does. You know what I'm saying? Right? God doesn't need you to be patient, but your spouse needs you to be patient. God doesn't need you to have self-control, but your children need you to have self-control. God doesn't need your money, but Damascus Road, we need your money. Straight up. CareNet needs your money. You know what I mean, living hope needs your money. God doesn't need you to fast, but the people in your family may need you to learn how to say no to your flesh. Right? It's not to make us look good on a pedestal. It's just the grace of God to meet us and to work that out in us. Oh, we need all the help we can get, every opportunity. How are we doing on time? I lost track. Every time my phone goes off, the timer I think stops. Alexis says, "What? You don't have a watch? You don't know what time it is?" (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, just two things, real quick, real brief. How you know a a preacher's lying? He says real quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Two ways. Two ways we can um, we can lose sight of the righteousness of God. Okay. One real brief. In Luke's Gospel, in chapter 18, you get this parable of um, the tax collector and the Pharisee. And it said that Jesus told this parable because there were some people there who trusted in their own righteousness, and they treated others with contempt. And there's uh, there's this picture of these two men at prayer in the temple. And the Pharisee is like, God, I thank you that I'm not like this scoundrel right here. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's easy to, to write that off and be like, blah, 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 those stupid Pharisees. I'm glad I'm not like those Pharisees and you kind of miss the point, right? Have a little sympathy for the Pharisees. Right? Surprise, surprise. James Griffin has sympathy for Pharisees. <laughs> right? Hear, hear, hear me out, okay? What that tax collector was doing was super wrong. Wrong. And everyone who the tax collector took money from, man, they were suffering because of his sin. Imagine it, like update it in different terms. Imagine, you know, like the very pious church grandmother is in church with the dudes selling drugs. And, you know what I mean? Like, that lady knows that this man is poisoning the neighborhood. And she knows people that have OD'd from this guy's stuff. And it's very, very just it's completely legitimate to be outraged because of this guy's sin. Completely legitimate. You should be upset. Sin isn't outrage. But the danger is if you forget, forget your own sin, if you're outraged only over other people's sins, that's a problem. That's a problem, right? And so the tax collector, he's crying out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that guy went home justified. That guy went home, declared righteousness. We need to start there. You can be upset over other people's sins, but you've you got to be first and foremost, you've got to be heartbroken over your own sin. Otherwise, it's, it's nasty. It's nasty and it's ugly. Second thing is this. Right, we get it wrong, and we forget that God's righteousness is donation to us, not something that we earn ourselves or merit. Second is this: if if we surrender the language of sin completely, and we describe the gospel merely in therapeutic terms, and we leave out sin, we can portray the gospel as Love and healing of our brokenness and being accepted and welcomed and lavished with affection by the Father. And all of those things are true. Not one of them is false. Not a single one. But if we stop there, we leave something out that's of central importance. What is it? What is it? Yes. Yes, it is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is telling—he's he's summarizing the gospel to the church at Corinth. And Corinth had tons of problems, and he still called them saints. And he said this, I delivered these things to you of primary importance, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Where are you getting that from, Paul? In accordance with the scriptures. That's where it's laid out at. Central importance is that we need our sins forgiven. And I know there's, there's a legitimate reaction away from that because some of our forebearers, right, have done a bad job. And they got so excited about telling people about their sins that they, they just clouded the glory of the gospel that people can't see it, right? Some of our forebearers have acted like Pharisees. I know that. I know sin's not a popular subject. I know that. But that's what makes the gospel such good news. In John chapter 16, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I understand that there is a reaction against those who are so offensive that they just, they just misrepresent God. I get that. But the offensiveness can't be removed completely. And sometimes, if we're honest, when we try to remove the offensiveness, it just makes it boring. Takes out all the drama. For real. <sighs> we try to take out every last little bit of offense and make people feel completely comfortable when we talk about the gospel, the cross, the scriptures. I'm telling you, there's plenty of other places to find community. You don't need Jesus to feel loved. You don't. You don't need the Holy Spirit to have a sense of purpose and mission in life. You don't. But only in Christ alone is there forgiveness of sins. Okay? Okay? Martin Luther, right? Look at this guy. Look at that mug. <laughs> Apparently, it's like some 500th anniversary of the Reformation, so what, would, what sermon would be complete without a quote from Martin Luther? It is apparent that not despair, but rather hope, is preached when we are told that we are sinners. Such preaching is a preparation for grace. Yearning for grace wells up when recognition of sin has arisen. The sick person seeks the physician when he recognizes the serious of his illness. Therefore, one, therefore one does not give cause for despair or death by telling a sick, sick person about the danger of his illness, but in effect, one urges him to seek a medical cure. To say that we are nothing and constantly sin when we do the best we can does not mean that we cause people to despair unless they are fools. Rather, we make them concerned about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe I take this a little bit personally because people, myself included, we didn't run into the church because we liked the music. We didn't come for these miserable excuses for snacks. Straight up. I came to the church because I was convinced that there was no place else to find forgiveness of my sins. And I dealt with the stuff that I found there that I didn't like. And I stay for that reason because the gospel's true. I don't know the, any other reasons sufficient to stay. I can find community anywhere. I don't need Jesus Christ to give me identity. I can, I can make that up myself. I need forgiveness for my many sins. And you do too. We can't can't lose that. Right? I understand. I understand. But we need to preserve that language. We need to preserve that understanding of the gospel. We need to carry that. And steward it responsibly. As we come today for communion. I want us to. Be filled with despair of our own unrighteousness. I don't want want this deep black cloud of sin to hang over us that would just be missing the point. If if God is showing us our sins, right? He doesn't leave us there. I want us to just bear this in mind. When When we come to the Lord's table, remember this. What Jesus said: blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Half the battle is realizing that we are lacking and we're desiring to be filled. No one eats because he's full already. but We eat because we are empty. And when we come to this table, we come with nothing to give except thanks. We come empty looking to be filled. This is not a meal for righteous people, but for those who despair of their sinfulness and hunger and thirst for righteousness that comes, and it comes indeed through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, thank you. Thank you that your sacrifice once and for all is sufficient. It is entirely sufficient that we come forgiven all the way. We don't grovel, but we come humble with thankful hearts. We come to receive your forgiveness. Remind us of that, Lord, again and again and again. Let not the enemy accuse us and tear us down. Build your people up, Lord. We ask this through Christ's name. Amen.